The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. has a leg that's fallen asleep. So we're taking the month of September to go back to our basic sitting practice. It's always nice and the thing about meditation practice or mindfulness practice is so simple that it actually is quite challenging. And we often make mistakes by like trying too hard and sort of missing the point of mindfulness. I mean, there is an active part of mindfulness practice, awareness practice. But generally, to really understand the active part of the practice, it's better first to uh, develop wisdom about the receptive part of practice. And then we can start bringing the two in balance, the receptive and the active part. But we have so many bad habits around being active, being the doer, you know, like the habit of trying to control things, make things the way we want them to be, that that generally immediately comes in, you know, okay, I got a new project, I'm going to develop mindfulness meditation. And it gets taken over by all of our doing, being the doer habits, controller, controlling things. So initially in practice, you often hear instructions that are emphasizing receptivity, openness. We sit down and we practice being open to the body, sensitive to the body, allowing the sensations of the body to be, allowing the experience of hearing to be, or even something very specific like allowing the sensations of breathing in to be. So we're just feeling the air touching the nostrils, and we're just allowing those sensations to be. Feeling the out-breath, allowing those sensations to be. And we're learning this, it's a real insight actually, it's a liberating insight. We're learning that it's possible for the mind to be clear, clearly aware, clearly connecting with the object of awareness without doing anything. It's amazing. Like maybe you even had a glimpse of this at the beginning of the guided meditation when we were opening the hearing. Because it really stands out, if you really get this, how the mind can be open, aware of hearing, and then and that openness, and that simple awareness that hearing is happening, hearing is being known, to recognize also that nobody's doing anything. Nobody has to do anything, that the knowing of hearing or the knowing of sitting or the knowing of breathing doesn't take any personal effort, doesn't take anybody doing anything. Because we have like one way to describe our basic delusion or our basic ignorance is this projection, this ongoing habit of projecting that in order to be alive, in order to be living, somebody's got to be doing something. And so because there's that strong belief, the mind keeps imposing that sense of doing, that efforting, the being, the somebody who's doing something. I'm living my life. Well, are we really? 
does there need to be a sense of somebody doing this life? So we take, you know, so much of formal meditation practice is creating relatively simple, a relatively protected environment where in that sim- simple environment, like sitting in an empty room or sitting in a big room with a bunch of like-minded folks like we did tonight, and just being with the body or being with the breath or being with hearing. So in that relative simplicity, we might discover that living or knowing happens without the mind creating the sense that somebody's doing something. So what we're doing, like in in meditation terms, is we're developing this insight into receptivity, into just letting things be. But then once once we get a sense of that and start to tune into the tranquility of just letting the experience be, this starts to carry into daily life. You know, we can be sitting there at a business meeting or at an academic meeting or at a family meeting, you know, whatever it might be, and just letting it unfold. And letting things unfold also means letting our personality unfold. It doesn't mean that we're doing something like keeping ourselves from participating in order to let the world happen. Letting things be, allowing things to be, means we're also allowing the personality to be. Our own patterns of reactivity or responsivity. We're just allowing things to arise as nature instead of somebody doing something, somebody being in charge, somebody needing this to happen or wanting that to happen. So we get better and better in in our formal way, in our formal sitting practice, letting the breath come in and out. I mean, it's a real accomplishment in spiritual sense. It's a real accomplishment to be able to sit and allow the breathing process to happen without any obvious sense of somebody doing the breathing. Like, that's a real liberation. Like, we're liberated. The mind is liberated from having to have the sense of somebody doing the breathing. Or if you're using hearing as your present moment anchor, for hearing to happen without the strong sense, the mind projecting the strong sense that there's somebody hearing. It's just hearing being known. Or feeling the body, same thing. So you could be using just generally the predominant sensations of sitting as your anchor for attention. And to be aware of the body, the sensations of the body, without somebody having the body, being the body, doing the body, even the sense of needing the one who's the witness or the one who's the observer, even that's unnecessary. It can just be sensations being known, breathing being known, hearing being known. So let that be the initial emphasis, like initial both in the sense of when we begin our practice, but then also like the first minutes of our sit every day. So even if you're an old pro, which is always a dangerous thought, it's much much healthier, it seems, to you know, be sort of a, a sincere beginner than any sense of like knowing what we're doing. In fact, a real sign of maturity in practice is a lot of clarity that we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> but that's okay. 
and, and a real ease with that, like a real ease with how challenging the practice is and how we're willing to engage it no matter how fumbling we appear to be with it, like how much the mind wanders or how much the mind gets caught in reactive patterns. We're just happy and content to be willing to begin again, to be a sincere beginner, to be somebody who has a real intuitive sense that this is a healing practice, whether you're really lousy at it or imagine you might be really good at it, but it's still healing nonetheless, wherever you might be along that spectrum. If we could even know where we are along that spectrum, like really bad compared to what or who, and how would we know, you know, that somehow the Dalai Lama is better at this than us, right? But don't we, do we make these assumptions? We see somebody sitting really still. They could be sound asleep, but we just have some. We immediately start feeling badly about ourselves, like God, you know, if only I could sit that still. <laughs> If somebody has really bright eyes, I used to, you know, like, be really interested, like, how bright people's eyes are. And then I started to notice that a lot of people with bright eyes are really crazy. Because <laughs> I thought, okay, that's not the criteria. And the same thing, you know, it's like, then you might start thinking, oh, you know, people who are real relaxed. But a lot of people who are really relaxed are just dull, or just disconnected. So... It's like, what a relief it is not to be looking for some objective standard to where we are compared to where we think we should be or where we used to be, but just to be content to engage the process of being initially receptive. And then the, the second thing I wanted to talk about is once we start getting better at understanding, intuitively getting what it means to be receptive, to uncover this receptive part of the heart or mind, that can allow things to be, that can drop the doing, the doer, and just allow sensation, sound, and then graduate level practice to allow thought to come and go without being the one who's thinking or being the one who's breathing or being the one who's hearing, being the one who's sitting, but just allow life to unfold from the receptive point of view. Then, out of that profound receptivity, openness, there can arise a more trustworthy, assertive part of the mind. Because in the end, the receptive and the assertive have to be in balance. It's not enough just to learn how to be very receptive. Because we might develop a lot of tranquility, which is good, of course, in the healing, but we won't necessarily transform the conditioning of the mind. Or in Buddhism, in Buddhist terms, we talk about transforming one's view. Like, for example, we all, because of the way we've been brought up, and maybe, maybe it's even influenced by our genetic conditioning, but in any case, we have a strong tendency to see things dualistically in terms of a self-centered view. So in order to transform that tendency to see things from me and you, this and that, good and bad, a dualistic point of view, we can't just cultivate tranquility or receptivity. It actually, it's useful to be receptive and tranquil, 
because it, it, it begins to take some of the sting out of having a dualistic view. But to really get some freedom, we need an assertive quality. And that assertive quality, the, one of the best ways to talk about it is it's a deep, pure interest in the truth of things. It's not somebody trying to get somewhere or somebody trying to attain something, like I'm trying to become enlightened. That's all, that view or that kind of assertive movement in the mind, that's all too gross. That's why we need the tranquility and the receptivity to undermine, to sort of suppress those tendencies of the mind to want to be enlightened, to want to figure things out. But once there is a profound receptivity, then we'll, in skillful ways, we'll uncover this beautiful, wise, assertive aspect of the mind. The mind that wants to understand the way it is now. Not theoretically, not philosophically the way that it is, but want to penetrate or want to open up the present moment experience. Deconstruct. So it's a, it's a it's an aspect of nature, just like letting go and being receptive and letting things just happen. That's an aspect of nature. You see it in all kinds of manifestations, like the leaves, the tree rather, just letting the leaves fall away. Right? That's such a, a natural like submission to fall, what trees do. You know, the sap comes down into the roots, the leaves release. It submits to the inhospitable weather that comes in the winter. It doesn't resist it. It doesn't complain. And so this is part of the receptive. But there's an assertive, like when the sap rises up into the tree, you know, and the buds form and the leaves come out. So these, these sort of receptive and you know the dying part of life and the birthing part of life. This is true on all levels. This metaphor isn't just like in terms of you know fall and spring, but it's also true in our minds. There's the death and there's the birth in our mind. And this birth, this natural birthing of the mind in the most pure sense is an interest in the truth or wanting to understand. And so this is part of our meditation practices. We're uncovering this. Without this assertive, active part, you know, we call it alertness or brightness or interest or investigation. There isn't an insight. But if we just have the assertive without the tranquility, the investigation won't bear good fruit because it's coming out of a tense, mind. It's coming out of a constricted mind. So the investigation or the interest, the interest in the truth is skewed by the constriction, the lack of tranquility. So that's why generally there's an emphasis on tranquility, developing the receptive qualities of the mind initially in order to support a more pure arising of the assertive part of the mind or heart the active part, the part that wants to understand things as they are. In Buddhist terms, we talk about the Buddha knowing Dhamma. 
the Buddha is, you know, not this historic person who lived 2,500 years ago, but it's this um, receptive, clear part of the mind, this balance between the assertive and the receptive. So once we understand the receptive, and then once we begin to understand the assertive, then the idea is to develop them both in tandem. So we first get a sense of the receptive, then we get a, then we cultivate that powerful, it's like primal. It's not like Mark wants to understand the truth of things. I want to understand it before you do. You know, that kind of uh, self-centered knowledge. It's more of a, a force of nature. What is this? You know, what is this existential reality right here, this mind experience, this mind-body experience? What is it? What is it free of the ideas about it? We are so removed from our lived experience through the layers of conceptualization <laughs> that we actually don't know the world or the reality we're living in and that we have been living in. And so once we get a sense of these two qualities of the mind and begin to develop them to the nth degree, like when is there too much tranquility in the heart and mind, or when is there too much brightness? And the thing about this brightness is that it's in a potential state. It doesn't have to prove anything. It doesn't need to accomplish anything. So the energy, the brightness, the interest isn't about going anywhere, you know, because it's interested in this not something else. And it's always this, you know, this moment, the way it is now. So it's a very stable energy. But it can become quite intense, the brightness, the interest, the alertness. As powerful as anything. You know, one of the interesting things as your meditation practice develops is you will be amazed at how tranquil the mind and body can become. And at the same time, you'll be amazed at how powerfully bright and alert and alive, full of energy, the mind and body can become. And how these two things can coexist at the same time. The, the amazing, unbelievable brightness, alertness, and the amazing stability and ease. So that brightness is content just to be bright. It's like having, you know, the power of a nuclear energy plant, but it doesn't need to flow anywhere. It doesn't need to light up the cities or do this or to do that. It's just energy in its potential state. And this is how it actually feels. We call this samadhi, when these two qualities get stronger and stronger in balance. Then samadhi sometimes is translated as right concentration or the unification of the mind. And this is the mind, then, that can see things as they are. Buddha, this balance, this beautiful balance, or samadhi, clear, pure, balanced awareness that's calm and alert, seeing things as they are. That's the Dhamma. So in Buddhism, we take refuge in the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dhamma. We're taking refuge in this beautiful balance of energy, and relaxation, knowing things as they are, knowing the truth, Dhamma. That's what Dhamma means, things as they are, the way it is, or the teachings pointing to the way that it is. 
And then what comes out of the Buddha knowing Dhamma are beautiful qualities. Because when the mind is balanced, it's very alert and relaxed. And with that balance of alertness and relaxation, we're connecting. There's that intimate connection with the present moment. So if we're engaged in an interaction with another human being, there's a profound intimacy. We're really showing up with that bright presence, that relaxed presence. Well, then, of course, more skillful action, a more beautiful response will come out of Buddha knowing Dhamma. That bright, relaxed attention, knowing the way that it is now, and then skill just comes out of that. Kindness and wise action and patience and gratitude and joy. All of the, you know, we could just easily list these beautiful qualities of mind that if we try to be joyful or try to be generous or try to be wise or try to be kind, they can get really stinky or neurotic. But if they can arise naturally, this is the whole point. The whole point of how the Buddha taught the path is we're teasing out somebody having to do it. Because where's the freedom in that? You know, needing having to be Mark who has to be enlightened, that's a heavy trip. So the Buddha's pointing to a natural process. Alertness is a natural capacity of the mind. It's not something Mark has to do. I don't have to be alert. Tranquility is a natural capacity of the mind. I don't have to try to be tranquil, try to be calm. It's ad- agitating to try to be calm, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't work to need to be calm, to try to be calm. Same thing with being clear. Trying to be clear distorts the mind. It gets in the way of clarity. So clarity and calm arise naturally by simply uncovering these qualities and letting them, in a sense, shine forth or letting them get stronger and stronger through the recognition of them and then the balance. And then the way it is, this present moment as it actually is, it's just revealed because of that balance. And then skill naturally organically unfolds from that clear, relaxed, balanced mind, seeing things as they are, we just become more and more skillful. And even if we happen to do something unskillful, that clear, relaxed, balanced attention is going to notice that was unskillful. And it's going to notice that judging ourselves because it was unskillful doesn't help. So it will abandon the judgment. It will simply receive the information that didn't work out so well. So there's like that beautiful feedback mechanism where we're learning from our life. If we respond skillfully in a moment, we're there with a balanced, alert, relaxed attention, and we really get, oh, that really worked well. And that just gets integrated into the mind, into the heart. And if we make a mistake, we get it. That was a mistake. It didn't work. It hurts. There's remorse. It feels like this. We see it in a balanced way. We receive it it gets integrated. We become a different person, less likely to make that same mistake the next time. Without anybody having to correct themselves or, you know, be guilty or anything like that. So the Buddha's pointing to a natural process of awakening. And we avoid this natural process of awakening by thinking that I'm a screwed up person who has to clean up my act. And by taking our suffering personally, taking the difficulty in life personally, 
we keep away from this natural awakening process. So instead of the Buddha like scolding us, get your acts together, you know, you're already this many years old, you've had this many opportunities, and still you make mistakes. What's going on? Instead of that, the instruction over and over again is to be mindful, to cultivate calm, to discover that there is this capacity for profound calmness, receptivity, letting things be. Letting the world happen on its own. Letting the breath happen on its own. There is this capacity for profound interest. The mind can be profoundly interested in the in-breath. It's amazing how interested it can be in the in-breath. Interested in a sound. Interested in the experience of sitting. Interested in the fluttering of emotion as it comes, as it goes in the mind. The mind, you'll see this, I'm sure you've noticed this already, how profoundly curious, interested, how intimate we can be. I mean, just in mundane ways, like, you know, you can be sitting and you just notice, and you can, like, be so still and interested watching an ant walk across the table. Have you, you know, times like that, or just, uh, you know, you see something, it's as if for the first time, and the kind of profound interest that can arise. So we know there is this capacity for a profound interest. And we're just uncovering it and, and in a sense, setting it loose. You know, this interest is a lot like love. I mean, real love, universal love, it's really about wanting to be close, wanting to connect, wanting to be intimate. I mean, that's what love is. So that's the active part You know, that's the creative part of the mind that we're releasing or developing or... It's not even that we're developing, it's more like an uncovering because we're suppressing it. We don't... It's interesting. I mean, this is how neurotic it is. We don't trust these two qualities. We don't trust relaxation because we think life is a scary place or we think it's an exciting place. In either case, we rationalize or justify tension because we think that's the appropriate response to life. It's either scary, so I should be tight, or it's exciting, so I should be tight. And we don't really trust relaxation and tranquility. And we also don't trust that profound interest because there's a very pervasive view that I already know what's going on, so why pay attention, right? Like even here, It's like, we don't even feel like, well, I don't need to be aware of my body. I already know what it's like to have a body. Or I don't even need to listen to what Mark's saying because I already know. I mean, over and over again, we cut ourselves off in the present moment because of some unseen, arrogant feeling that I already got it. I already know what's going on. And we're on to some imagination of what's important, some concepts, some idea. But we've disconnected from things as they are. And we don't even realize it, of course. If we did, we wouldn't do it. So that's the uncovering piece, is we're uncovering the distrust for tranquility and the distrust for this natural brightness, natural interest or love, this willingness to really connect. Like I was, I took a walk just before the program tonight 
just walked on the block and through Matthews Park, just a block away, and came back. And uh, and I just noticed, you know, just as I was walking, you know, just the awareness of the sidewalk and how amazing it it is, just the the vividness and the, you know, the thing about walking and seeing the sidewalk is the mind actually doesn't know what the next like section or piece of the sidewalk is. It's like that's that birth thing that I mentioned earlier. It's like the next view, the next visual image, it's completely unknown. So you know, when we see or know or experience something that's completely unknown, that's brand new, it's amazing. You know how that is. But when we think we know, we stop paying attention, we disconnect. Oh, it's just a sidewalk up. Who pays attention to the sidewalk? Do you know? And we're making that choice millions of times every day. Like, oh, who cares? What does it matter? But actually, seeing the trees, seeing the sidewalk, hearing the voice of our friend, whatever it might be, it's never happened before. It's a pure creation. And if the mind actually were connecting with it, the mind would be in amazement. To really fully be there is this investigation or this interest. Investigation isn't this like burden, I need to investigate this. That's just self-centered, deluded activity. That's what we do all the time. That's not what I'm talking about in terms of the assertive, active part of the mind. We're unleashing a natural force of connecting, of being intimate, of being amazed by whatever the mind is knowing, or the mind is seeing, or the mind is connecting with. And it really drives the awakening process, balanced with tranquility. So then we have Buddha, knowing the way it is, expressing these beautiful qualities. The more the mind is in balance, having insights, seeing things as they are, the more beautiful qualities just start being expressed. And the more dangerous it becomes, because whatever tendencies of the mind in the mind to take things personally, they're going to get activated. Because all of a sudden, our life starts to work better. The mind's brighter. It's clearer. We're more responsive, more skillful. It's like, well, I don't mind owning this life. It's working pretty well. You know, I look pretty good. I feel pretty good. I'm pretty skillful. The world is responding to me. And we start thinking, like we're the master of the universe. So this is the thing about spiritual life is we often, not always, people enter for different reasons, but often people enter because life isn't working very well. And so they get in, they look for something and they maybe stumble across these teachings and they feel, oh, it makes sense. They cultivate the practice, uncover this tranquility, uncover this love, this assertive connecting part of the mind start having insights, start feeling more alive, more skillful in life. And then it's like we feel like we have permission to take it personally, for the ego to take rebirth as the more skillful person. And it starts to slowly undermine anything we've gained from the practice. We corrupt it by taking the wisdom, the insight, the tranquility, the energy personally. We take it personally. As we get identified, we've started to disconnect from the present moment again, because that's what identification is. Attachment 
is the mind getting fixed on an idea, like the idea that I'm together. Right? We get fixed on that idea. In order to get fixed on that, the idea, the mind disconnects, in a sense, from things as they are. It creates a kind of psychological distance from reality. And we start to feel dead, even though the deadness is coming out of this, th this thinking that, hey, my life is really working for me. And so we have this facade that my life is really working, but the, the real life is being drained. And it, it isn't long before everything starts to smell badly. You know, and then, if we're fortunate, we just start over again. And this can happen in one sit many times. So watch it. You know, in your 30 or 60 minute sit, you'll be sitting and you'll be the suffering human being, and because of that, sincere. And you'll follow the instructions sincerely, coming back to the breath, cultivating a continuity of awareness, allowing the breath just to be allowing the sensations in the body to be, allowing the disturbing thoughts to come and go, and just let them be. And tranquility begins to develop. Right? And then, out of that tranquility, you notice that kind of truth-seeking, that willingness to be intimate, to connect. And the mind starts to come in balance. You know, And it isn't long before the thought arises, oh, I really understand what this practice is about. I really got it. You know? And already we're starting to corrupt the practice. But if we're sensitive, if we're still present to some degree, the suffering will wake us up. We'll realize, oh, why is it hurting so much? Why is the mind, heart so tight? Oh, you know, there's attachment, there's identification. And like a house of cards, that whole construction, that little hell realm we created, can fall apart. This can happen in three minutes or less. And then, then we're back, okay, that sincere practitioner again, just doing what we're told to do, which is to rest in receptivity, in openness, just let things be, finding the tranquility again, allowing it to develop, to express itself, to support the mind, feeling the brightness build, the energy build. But now we're a little wiser, maybe, you know, and so we maintain the balance without taking it personally. So it gets even more bright, more at ease, more alive. And then we go, oh, this really is working. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's amazing. We fall into the same hole over and over again. But that's okay. Because as long as the suffering wakes us up, and it will eventually, some people that maybe months get trapped in a little bubble, you know, or years before we crash and start over again. And the really good practitioners are crashing all the time. Meaning, as soon as the mind constructs suffering, constructs identification or attachment in any big or little way, the mind is sensitive to the suffering of it, the tension of it, and catches it and starts over again. And, and in that way, it's like we're getting to be, the mind is becoming an expert at recognizing suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering and the end of suffering. Or you could say constriction and the abandoning, the dropping of constriction in the heart. Constriction and abandoning, constriction and abandoning. And then eventually, even that activity of catching the mind getting attached, getting identified and dropping, even that begins to be seen as a natural process. 
Like, it isn't even somebody, it isn't even something that somebody has to be vigilant about. Like, wisdom just starts being seen as its own sort of natural thing. The wisdom that catches that constriction and lets go. Sees it and lets go. And then we really get a sense of the freedom. The freedom isn't even about having that nice balance of alertness and relaxation and seeing things as they are. The freedom is seeing that the awakening process itself is natural and isn't something anybody has to own. Because initially, we have to own it. You know, I'm really interested in the awakening process. I don't want to be the suffering being. I want to be on this path. But even that identity becomes too much. And we have to just surrender and let the awakening process be what it is. That's the radical letting go. But initially, it's okay to get identified with the awakening process, the development of tranquility, balance with alertness, seeing things as they are, experiencing the freedom, getting identified with the freedom, feeling the suffering of that, letting it go, starting again, building the tranquility, the alertness, seeing things as they are, feeling enlivened and free, getting identified, letting it go. But that we see that a million times, and then the mind lets go in an even more profound way. It says, the awakening process is just what it is. Happening on its own, nobody has to do anything. It's all okay. And that's real freedom. Then, the life that's being lived here is really set free. So I'll leave it here. Uh, we have about 15 or 20 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some people about any questions you have about what I've said or just uh, comments from your own practice, what you've been learning, how you practice, what's challenging in your practice, what comes to mind. And if you speak up, it's nice to speak up loudly so people can hear you and please say your name too. distracted by the other impulses in the mind, like the thought, that stupid mark looking at the sidewalk, you know? So that thought may be arising, but the doing is, you know, don't be confused by that thought. There's nothing wrong with being aware of the sidewalk. So initially, there is quite a bit of efforting, willful efforting in practice, but it's mostly the effort not to be swept away down avenues, mental avenues, that the mind recognizes wouldn't be helpful or productive right now. Because we can plan tomorrow a hundred times, and then the hundred and first time, the mind can go, do I need to do this? No, let's just be here. You know, I don't need to think that again. I don't need to compare this to that. 
I don't need to wonder about this or fantasize about that. So that constant dropping, feeling the impulse to think or to do this and putting it down. But eventually, the, uh, you know, the receptivity and the assertive part of the mind, they have enough momentum that more of the practice then becomes just trusting these natural forces in the mind. But initially, we have to make a lot of effort to abandon the different tendencies towards distraction. Because there's so much momentum toward distraction that we need to counter that momentum with a strong intention, a, a willful doing. Like, I, don't, I want to explore what it's like not to just do what I always do with my mind. So coming out of uh, some recognition of how much what the mind does is unproductive, there, there arises this willful intention to explore what, is, what happens if I abandon all that doing, that thinking, that wondering, that fantasizing, that comparing. So yeah, it is confusing initially. But it's in the direction, that doing is in the direction of things happening on their own. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, remind me your name? Christina. Christina. So what, what do you think is like, um, when you connect, what's a good way to not attach when you connect? The key is to keep connecting. What, what, where the attachment comes in is there's connection. And because of that connection, is so, uh, it's so primally healing to connect. Because... It's like the basic disease of the heart is disconnection, alienation, separation. So any moment, even something seemingly simple like the mind knowing the breath coming in, that's a connection. There's a deep healing in that connection. And the tendency, because it's so healing, the tendency is the habit of the mind to take it personally gets activated. And we want to take that nice feeling of healing personally that you can continue to connect. So connect to that habit to take it personally. See it. And see it for what it is. It's constricting. Oh, this is constricting. This is unnecessary. So the difference between attachment and seeing attachment, that's the difference. So if you want to continue, not get lost, then continue being intimate. First you're intimate with the healing, and then you're intimate with the intention of the mind to disconnect by getting attached to the healing, getting attached to the pleasant feeling of the healing, taking it personally. You've got to connect with that. And what you're connecting with is how constricting that is. It's basically like you're connecting, oh, I'm touching a really red-hot pan. It hurts. And you let go. So that's what you have to see that that intention is burning and you don't want to go there. Yeah, you can be aware of the pleasantness, but the, the, the thing that you're more likely to be missing is how in getting identified with the pleasantness, you're going to be trying to hold on to it and make it last, make it even better, make it permanent. And then you just need to catch that as an activity in the present moment. And, and you have to connect with the heaviness of it. If you don't see the heaviness of it, 
you won't let it go, the mind won't let it go. So it's the seeing of it as it actually is at a loss for the letting go. Just like the seeing, the healing, and the, the actual intimacy as it actually is allows it to become even more profound, to keep developing, you know, into the next moment of connection or intimacy. Yeah. Thanks, Christina. Barbara. What do you see as the connection between this connection and grief? And grief? Well, grief is a, uh, a real grieving is a profound connection, right? Like I, the moments that I remember of real, honest grieving, it's a profound experience. One way to think about connection, that intimacy, is when the mind, this balanced mind that's really alert and relaxed, connects with things as they are, and in this case, connecting with grief or sadness, right? What it, what's experienced is movement, nothing static. It's very alive. So grieving is very alive. And when the connection maintains, meaning there's no resistance to the movement of grief, the movement of sadness. So it's the movement, the emotion is moving, it's alive. Then the life that's being lived feels very alive and very real. And it's scary to be moving with grief, or just like it's scary actually to be moving with joy. The mind immediately, you know, going back to what Christina was pointing to, the mind immediately wants to fix the joy and fix the grief into a concept. Oh, I'm really hurting because I lost my good friend, you know. So now we've conceptualized it, we have a story, and the story has the appearance of being fixed. I understand what's going on. So we've traded being alive for the seeming safety of the fixed idea. But there's no healing, there's really no life there. Same with the joy. We could create an idea, oh, she's the one for me, he's the one for me, you know. And now we're not living that moment anymore. We're not in the joy, the movement of joy, the movement of happiness, the movement of intimacy. So real grieving is the mind connecting with nature, the movement, the aliveness of the sad emotion or the grieving process, the movement of strong feeling. And that's healing. Like to let things move is healing, whether it's the movement of joy or the movement of sadness or the movement of mystery of not knowing. But movement is very enlivening. But it's not what we're used to. We're, we're frightened by that movement because there's a sense of losing control. A control, of course, we never had, but we imagine we have because of ideas which have the appearance of being fixed. And so it seems like we have control because our ideas are static. But the, there's a, it's like the ultimate trade-off or deal with the devil because in being identified with our ideas about things, it gives us a, a, a superficial sense of safety, but the consequences were disconnected. And so we feel a little lifeless. So we're always seeking some new experience because this experience is so dead. But it's not the moment, the present moment that's a problem. It's the fact that we've conceptualized and identified with the concept, the story. We're not actually moving with life. Yeah, Maria. Well, this is what you're saying now has some bearing on what I've been 
Could be a little louder. Oh, I, I have all, I, very often I have this like voiceover in my head. Um, this is going on, that's going on. I feel this way, I feel that way. And I always thought, well, the goal of whatever one does, whatever spiritual practice or whatever one does to try to be a better person somehow in terms of consciousness is to get rid of that. And now I'm starting to sort of see, well, maybe it's not to get rid of it. Maybe it's just to accept that as just one more current yeah. of phenomena, you know. Because, to be intimate. Yeah. Like, Can we be, one that's one of the hard things to be intimate with, that sort of mundane, endless chatter. Yeah. We want to control it. First, we're lost in it, you know, and then as we see it more, the mind's more in balance, and we just see how pervasive that inner dialogue, inner chattering is, then we want to destroy it, yeah. you know. The goal is to get rid of it. Yeah, and then it's almost as neurotic as the just being lost in it, wanting to destroy it or control it, and it won't work, of course, because that's just more chatter, the need to destroy it, like, i got to get rid of you. It's like... You know, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde happening in our own mind, except there's like so many dimensions of it, it's totally crazy. But it's always possible, in a sense, this isn't exactly right, to step back and just to let it be. That's that receptive part. And then to understand it and to see that it's not self. It's just, like you said, another strand of nature, another natural pattern. Some natural force that's been set in motion to suit some incalculable number of causes and conditions and it's like this and it can be left alone as a natural force nobody needs to do anything so the transformation is a, a transformation of understanding like we're understanding that chatter in the mind not about controlling the chatter in the mind that's what changes is the understanding of what it is what it isn't reaction to just letting it all go? It's the fear and anxiety that goes along with that. Yeah. Which, you know, I went to see uh, someone who's a functional medicine doctor. He was saying that half of his clients, people who come in through the doors like me, are just full of anxiety and fear and all this mind, endless mind shutter that is really pervasive in such a way that it Trying to control it. I mean, everything. Yeah. And the question for me is really 
It doesn't give you a lot of relief? Yeah. Always has. Yeah. And it, the question is always going to be long. How much am I trying to Well, here's one thought that might be helpful, and we'll have to end here. Um, there's two types of craving, and it's really useful to see how we swing from one to the other. One kind of craving, there are really two in this first category, craving for certain sense experiences and craving to become. And this, we could say, is the positive part of craving, not positive in, in a sense of good, but just positive in the sense of like forward. So we're excited by projects. We're excited about doing. We're excited about becoming. We're going to make our life work. I'm going to start meditating every day, or I'm going to do this project. And then life, when we're identified, when we're taking it personally, is endlessly frustrating. So we're eventually going to get frustrated. And we're just going to want to be done with it, you know? And that's the second kind of craving. I just want to be done with life. I want to be done with this project. I want to be done with this relationship. I'm tired of taking care of this body. I just need out. Get me out. But that's just the same thing. It's just in the negative direction, the opposite direction. Forward into life, get me out of life. Both are craving. And so this is our kind of uh, simple description of our life, swinging from positive to negative, from negative to positive. You know, we kind of go to hell, we give up, we remove ourselves, and then we take rebirth. Okay, I'm, this time I'll do it right. I'll move to another city, I'll, you know, whatever. You know, and, and then there's the inevitable crash. So we see that enough, and the mind, the heart, in a resonant way goes, is there another way? You know, is there another way? not that. I mean, this is real wisdom. It's not this, and it's not that. And then the question is, what is the other way? Well, all we know right now, it's not this, and it's not that. And that's the meditation practice. It's not this, I don't trust this, and I don't trust this. I don't trust trying to become somebody like a good meditator. I don't trust trying to get rid of my chatter. I don't trust these two things. So we're sitting there in that space of not trusting these two things, because that's what our life has taught us. That's the initial insight, and it's real. And then out of that, we discover life just letting things be. And I'm not going to try to get rid of things. I'm not going to try to fix. I'm not going to try to become anything. And that's we're just sitting in that place. I'm not trying to become. I'm not trying to get rid of. Just letting the breath come and go. We're not trying to fix the breath. We're not trying to, you know, we're just letting things be. And we discover some tranquility there, like you suggested in your meditation practice. You get some relief. Now, the key is to just trust it, because this gives us some relief, and I know this doesn't work. Like, not forgetting this insight. This doesn't work, and this doesn't work. This gives me some relief. So keep developing that. And then out of that tranquility, you'll feel this force for truth, this interest in connection, in real love, real connection. And then you let that sort of operate in your sitting and in your daily life. Like, instead of becoming or doing this project, it's more about, I'm just going to completely show up. Like if a new relationship arises in our life, instead of like thinking, this is what I need, it's like, this is going to just be an opportunity to completely show up. And it's either going to be a disaster, and I'm going to completely show up to that, or it's going to be a great thing, and I'm going to completely show up to that. 
And we're just, that's it. That's what we're going to do. We just show up and let things be. Love, that's the assertive part, and letting things be. Birth and death. Whatever. And so then it doesn't matter if there's a new project or nothing's happening in our life. We're just going to show up. We're going to be intimate and let it be. But we have to let it go here. We'll just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.